You can invest in real estate in any market as long as you know what market you're in. So education made a lot of money and it was a proof of concept for me and for my wife. Right now, currently, and we're recording this in September 2020, ringless voicemail, texting, and PPC are working the best for us. We're starting to introduce direct mail back into our process. The easiest time to be a wholesaler, in my opinion, is in a declining market. The hardest time to be a wholesaler is in a seller's market. We're currently in a seller's market. The real estate world is changing. Opportunity is everywhere. It has never been so easy to connect, share, and bring people together. We're learning from others and finding the very best in ourselves. Challenging our beliefs, overcoming our fears, transforming ourselves so we can transform our business. This is Investor Creator. Mike, welcome to Investor Creator. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Happy to be. Yeah, for sure. So for those of you that don't know, my second podcast ever was with Mike, and that was like three or four years ago. So this feels kind of like homecoming for me to be able to have Mike on the show. So I really want to get into, because Mike's been in the business for a long time, has done a lot of deals. I'm really curious about your opinion of the state of the economy, the state of the market. So how are you feeling about the market so far? So I feel about the market the way people probably should have felt right before the crash last time. I think we're heading for a correction, whatever you want to call it, a downturn, a correction, you know, whatever the case may be, I think that we're going to head into a buyer's market. So everything's cyclical. It always has, always will be. About every 10 years or so, there it happens, right? The, you go from a seller to a buyer's market. I think right now the market's super hot. So if you're a house flipper and you've got inventory that you're renovating, like, it's great because at least in my market, and I know just because I know a lot of people from around the country, people are selling for astronomically high prices right now. So it, it could not be a better time to have a house to sell. But that makes it a challenge as a wholesaler, which is what I am primarily. It makes it a challenge because everyone knows that prices are high, are high at all-time high. So it's, it gets a little more tricky. But the reality is we don't buy houses from folks that aren't in some sort of distress anyway, typically. So, you know, we buy because of um, death, divorce, job transfer, job loss, whatever, downsizing. The house is, you know, just too big sometimes. So we buy, those things still happen, whether in you're in a buyer's market, a seller's market, those things happen. But some of the deals that we will get in the next 12 to 18 months will be deals we could never have gotten right now because we're in a declining market. And my guess is, the news is going to start screaming, oh my gosh, real estate's in trouble. Everyone's losing their house values and people are going to be dumping their houses fast because they don't want to hit the bottom, right? So there'll be houses that we will buy in the next 12 to 18 months for people that are just trying to avoid losing all their equity. So that'll happen. But you know what? There's always distress of some kind and there's always a reason to sell for cash. And sometimes it's just, you know, like deferred maintenance. Sometimes people just owe you know, it's good. They have to replace a roof. It's going to cost $10,000. It might as well be $100,000 because they don't have it and they're not going to have it. And the house is just falling apart and they would rather just dump it for half of its value and not have to worry about all that. And they can't sell it on the MLS. So 
you know, people get all like, the thing I hate that I hear, sometimes people say, oh, I don't want to start real estate investing now. Like it's the wrong market for, to be an investor. And I think about people that I know that have been in real estate for 15, 20, 30 years. It's like, you can invest in real estate in any market as long as you know what market you're in, right? You have to be aware of the conditions, but all of the market conditions are conducive to real estate investing. You just have to change your strategy a little bit, change your approach for whatever market you happen to be in. And right now we're in a seller's market. You need to know that, right? But when we're in a buyer's market, which is coming, you need to know that because there's dangers in, in both sides, right? So it's just knowing where you are. 100%. It's so funny because I've heard so many people say, well, I would get into the market if the market wasn't so good. Well, if the market was terrible, those same people would say, well, I'd get into the market if the market was a little bit better. Yep. And, and there's always different ways to look at it. I agree that I think that a correction is coming. I don't know that it's an 08 scenario, although it could be, you know, who knows, but I don't feel like an 08 scenario is here. But I feel like with every problem, there's equal opportunity. Yep. You know, our ability to buy is going to get better in the future. And we've bought some great deals the past three or four years, you know, in, in the hottest seller's market in recent memory. Yep. And I know you have too. And so I really feel excited to not the word because there's going to be a lot of hurting people, but there's going to be enough opportunity for all of us to, to do what we need. Absolutely. Do. If I was the reason why the market's going to crash and people are going to lose their jobs, I would feel terrible about myself, but I am not the one causing it, but it's right. going to happen whether I do any, you know, whether I like it or not, it's going to happen. So, and the fact of the matter is, and the way that I look at it and the way people should look at it in this industry is I'm certainly not hurting anybody. I'm going to be helping people. There are going to be people who are in real need to either sell their house fast or people who are in a real need to buy a house. And I'm going to help them on both ends. So we're in the business of helping people, not hurting people, but bad things happen and you need to be there to, to be someone who actually can help people in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. And there's going to be a ton of people. I heard the latest numbers, 5 million houses in forbearance right now, another 1.9 million, not in forbearance that are behind on payment. Yep. So significant problems, big yep. opportunity coming. coming. How did you get involved in this business in the first place? Uh, like probably everybody who's listening to this, who is still working nine to five, I just didn't like working a nine to five, didn't enjoy, wasn't happy, felt like I wasn't doing anything to better myself. And honestly, I was going to end up working until I died. Basically, I, I just wasn't generating the income I would have needed to retire comfortably. And, you know, it's pretty common. It's like the amount of people that go into work and are not excited or happy about what they do and dread Monday morning. That's a super high number. The amount of people that do something about it is a super low number. And believe me, I was one of those people that hated it and didn't do anything about it for the longest time. I kept convincing myself that I was where I needed to be, but I was in the, in the working world, automotive industry for almost 20 years before I escaped. You know, like I think of it as like this huge gravitational pull. It mm. took me a long time to break out of the gravitational pull of the nine to five world. I had kids, I had a mortgage, I had a wife, like I had all the excuses that people use. And I just sat there and kind of was miserable for a long time until I finally said enough, you know, like, I don't want to do this the rest of my life. I'm not happy doing this. I'm miserable. As a matter of fact, I don't like where I go into work. I don't like being there. So, you know, I'm a real big fan of it. It took me a while. Like it took me a while to get this through my head, but I'm a big fan of people who complain. I always tell them, and I usually kind of like blunt about it, like do something about it, right? If you're not happy with what's happening in your life, what are you doing about it? And if they say nothing, then I lose interest because I don't have a lot of patience for people who want to complain, but then do nothing. Now, if you want to be miserable and keep it to yourself, that's fine. 
yeah, if you 100%. want to be miserable, yeah, man, just don't talk about it. And if you're miserable and you want to do something about it, I'm there for you. Like I'm, I'm the first guy who's going to go, awesome. Let's figure this out. Let's make a plan. But people who complain and do nothing, they suck life out of me. I just can't be around them. Yeah. I told my mentees, I run at the speed that you run. So if you want to jog, I'll jog with you. If you want to sprint, we can do that too. But you know, I'm not going to be the, the one pushing you or like running faster than you pulling you along. Yeah. Because it, it's just a mental battle. There's no way to do it. You know what I mean? No. So no. And the minute I start getting pushback, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but the minute I start getting some sort of like, yeah, you know, but my market, you can't do, I just, okay, I, I just tune out. Yeah, no, no motivated sellers in their market, definitely. No, none, none. <laughs> so tell me about your first deal. I mean, I remember my first, I'm sure you do too. Tell, tell me how that went. Yeah, I do remember my first deal. Pretty good. So the first deal I did, I'll tell you what, the first deal I tried to do, I got a property under contract, put down an earnest money. I was using a local mortgage, like a small independent mortgage company to finance it. This was back in 08. And um, before I closed, they went out of business, the mortgage company. Wow. I lost my EMD. I lost my funding and I lost the deal. And it was devastating. It was a couple thousand dollars that I lost. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I doing here? This is crazy. I'm going to lose all my money. But I stuck with it, made another offer about six months later. Well, I made up a lot of offers, but I got another house under contract about six months later, same neighborhood, one street over half wow. the price that I was going to pay for the first one. So like the universe saved me on the first one because I would have lost a ton of money. The second house though, I got it for half the cost, renovated it. I used a mortgage to buy it. I still used a mortgage, but I went with a bigger mortgage broker. As far as the renovation, I used a combination of my own cash on hand in credit cards to buy materials. So we were kind of all in, my wife and I, on the renovation with our own money and made it ton of mistakes. It took too long. I hired the wrong contractor. He didn't pay some of the subcontractors, kind of a disaster. But at the end of the day, I bought the house for 40, sold it for 75 and made $15,000 in the middle, right? So education made a lot of money and it was a proof of concept for me and for my wife. I was like, okay, so I can do this. I can really actually do it. This isn't just a concept for me because I got interested in real estate in 2003. I didn't buy my first house until 2008. So in the middle there, was a lot of procrastination, a lot of excuses, a lot of fear, a lot of second guessing, a lot of shiny object syndrome, all that stuff that stops people happened to me. But once I finally did one, it was like giving a shark a taste of blood. Like I, yeah. I was absolutely crazy about getting the next one and then the next one, next one, next one. And I was just, I couldn't get enough. So you're doing approximately hundred deals a year now, correct? Yeah. Last year we did about a hundred deals. Yes. We won't okay. probably do that this year, to be honest. It'll probably be just under that, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. So at what point did you begin to scale? I mean, 100 transactions, that, that's a lot of deals. It's a lot. And I went from doing probably 24 to 30 a year to doing 100 in less than 12 months. And it is one pretty much fully attributed to joining a mastermind, not just joining any old mastermind, but surrounding myself with people who had the businesses that I wanted to have, people who were doing 100 deals, right? It's like, it's hard to believe someone does a hundred deals until you meet the person, get to know them and verifiably see that they're doing a hundred deals. And then you go, oh, mind blown. You can do a hundred right. deals. I thought the most I would ever do is like 25 or 30. Like that's the most you can do. But I realized, no, there, you can do more than that. You just have to have systems and processes and build a team. And if you can do those things, you can scale basically limitlessly because it's not just your efforts. And it was all my efforts up until then. 
And I met people like Andy McFarlane and Bill Allen and some of these other folks that are in the seven-figure flipping group that you're aware of. I got to sit down and deconstruct their business and find out how they did it. And not only what they did right, but what they did wrong. So I was able to take a guy like Andy McFarlane and I was able to, to take his hindsight, his 2020 hindsight of everything he's done and use it as my foresight. And when you can start doing that and you can stand on the shoulders of people who have done it before you, you can see so much farther. And if it takes them five years to do something and you get their playbook, both right and wrong, things they did that worked well and didn't work well, you can compress that. You can sort of leverage that to do exactly what my new book is about called Level Jumping. You can jump levels. When I was a kid and I would go up the stairs in my house, I would always go two at a time, right? Because I was a normal mm-hmm. teenage boy. I, I was just in a hurry all the time. And no I time. Two at a time. Yeah. And, and that's what I've been able to do in my business is level jump. I'm not just going to the, everyone talks about, I want to take my business to the next level. That's fine. I want to take my business to the next, next level. Like I want to skip a level if I can. If I can learn from your mistakes, Brad, and you tell me what you've done right and wrong, and I can avoid all the problems and just do the things that work for you, why should I not be able to go up more than just one level? I should be able to, right? Shame on me if I can't. So that's what I did. And I instituted systems and processes. I started tracking my numbers, which is huge. I started learning how to hire effectively, how to compensate people, how to lead, manage, and inspire people. Like That's what it means to go from being in the trenches, out there beating the bushes, looking for deals, talking to homeowners, going and talking to buyers, going to the title closing, like all that stuff. I don't do that anymore. Like The 100 deals I did last year, I only know the addresses because we have a meeting once a week where we go through all of our properties and just discuss them. I haven't been in them. I don't go to the properties anymore. I don't go to the closings. I don't go to the properties and I don't visit sellers and get purchase agreements. My team does that. So that's what it means to run a business and scale. That's how I did it. Yeah. So did you have a difficult time getting hands off on some of those things? Because I know a lot of people, so we do the same thing. We're buying and selling houses. I don't see, I don't really know about to a, a large extent. But I know a lot of people, if, if I'm at a dinner party or something, I'm talking about real estate, they're like, oh man, you must like have a lot of time on the road. And I'm like, actually, no, I, I don't because I don't go look at houses. Yeah. Uh, people think that that's just the craziest thing ever. So did you have some things that you had a difficult time going hands off? I am incredibly trusting when it comes to bringing people on, hiring them and sending them out there. So I don't, I don't have time getting, I don't have time training and hiring out stuff that I'm doing. But I will say the last thing, things that I hired out were the things that I liked to do the most and that I felt I was the best at. So, mm-hmm. and I recommend that anybody, if people ask me all the time, who do I hire first? Depends. What are you really good at? And what are you really bad at? And if they go, well, I think I'm pretty good at all of it. Okay. Let me rephrase that. What do you like doing the least? Cause chances right. are they're bad at that and they're not doing it at a high level. So whatever you're bad at slash don't like to do, that's where you need to start your hiring process. And the things that you love doing, you're probably really, really good at it because you love it. Hire those out last. Don't hire them first. So dispositions was one of the things that I hired out last because I'm good at it and I liked it. And then once that was hired out, the last thing I held on to was marketing because I'm good at it and I like it. So, but one of the first things I hired out, transaction coordination, hate it. Don't like doing it. I don't like dealing with title companies. I don't like looking at HUDs and making sure they're correct. Chances are, if you make me, put me in charge of that, I will make mistakes. I will miss things because I'm not a detail person. I'm not great at sales. So I hired a salesperson early on because I knew they would be better than me at it. I was okay, but I wasn't great, you know? And nobody builds a quality business with people who are okay. You know, you need people who are really good and hopefully great, or at least they can be great. 
So hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, that's a great thought. Hire for the weaknesses. So if we're doing a hundred transactions a year, I have to assume that you're not doing that from your sphere of influence. You're not doing that from networking with people, no. although partially, but it, it has to come down to marketing. I mean, yeah. and I see this in my business. Marketing is a driver for the business. And I feel like a lot of people, they look at marketing as an expense as an instead of an investment. So, I mean, what kind of marketing are you seeing work very well right now? So good question. Let me tell you what's worked for me traditionally over the last five years. The workhorse for me, far and away, I've gotten the more deals. I, I would say somewhere between 65 and 75% of all the deals that I've done in the last five years have been through direct marketing, direct mail marketing. Number two would be the channel that has not given me the most leads, but has given me the highest ROI, which would be PPC, Google AdWords, is always for us the highest ROI, not the highest volume. Okay, mm-hmm. now fast forward into March of 2020 when coronavirus hit and things sort of got a little wonky, direct mail quickly dropped off the map for us. It stopped working. Interesting. Mostly. And I think everyone's different where you live. You know, it affects you differently. You had different messages coming from your government, local government. And in Michigan, it hit pretty hard. Like we were one of the hardest hit states in the country and there was a lot of fear around it. And so my assumption is that the reason why the direct mail stopped working so well is our demographic that we buy from is older people, mostly. If you look at the deals we've done over the last five years, like, you know, 90% of the deals are probably people over the age of 50. And that group got especially concerned because they're at risk for COVID. And there was, for a while, this idea that you can't touch your mail because it could have the virus on it, right? So I think that's what happened. So for us, PPC quickly turned into our not only highest ROI, but our highest volume deals that we were getting. And we also added, because we know people are sitting home, they're not working, they can't go anywhere and they're just on their phones. So we started doing a lot more text blasts and a lot more ringless voicemail. And those started producing for us at a higher rate than what they had in the past. So right now, currently, and we're recording this in September, 2020, ringless voicemail, texting, and PPC are working the best for us. We're starting to introduce direct mail back into our process. Very cool. Very cool. So what's your process once the lead is captured? So I know you've got a a pretty strong team. I mean, how does the, the, the seller flow through your process? Yep. So typically they're going to get a postcard from us or they'll, they'll see us online. Like they'll Google sell my house and find us, which will generate a phone call. We have in-house phone people who answer phones for us. We don't do voicemail and we don't do anything else. It's all live answer in-house. So we have folks that answer the phone for us. And when they answer the phone, their job is to find out really four things. Number one, do they have a house that they could sell, right? That just qualifies them as a lead. A lot of calls come in and they say, how'd you get my information? I don't have a house anymore. Are you stalking me? Like all these crazy things. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, Like everyone thinks they're so special that I would stalk them in their house. But uh, so do they have a house to sell? That's just number one. Number two, how much do they want for the house? Number three, when do they want to sell? And then number four is how soon can we have an, can we get an appointment? So scheduling that appointment. Now, when people talk to our people on the phone, when they call into my company, we'll ask them a lot more than that. But all we really care about is well, how much do they want? When do they want to sell by? And can we get an appointment? Because everything else that we ask them, how many bedrooms, how many bathrooms, what style house, what are the upgrades you've done? All of that is literally just so we can build rapport and get them talking and feeling comfortable, right? I don't care how many bedrooms they tell me they have because it's all public record. I can look at how many bedrooms they have. What style is it? 
I can just go on Google and see the house if I want to, right? So all of that is because if I just lead with the questions I really want to know and just fire them off one after the other, you're going to get a lot of resistance. So, you know, we ask a lot of questions just to sort of break down those walls and get in there. So then that's that. And then hopefully we get an appointment. That appointment gets put in our calendar of our acquisition folks. They go on the appointment. My acquisition people only have two things that they're concerned about. Doing pre-work. So looking at the property that they're going to go on the appointment for, running comps, knowing what the house is sold for around it, and knowing what the ones for sale currently are around it, and sort of running their own numbers and going on appointments and getting contract. That's it. Once they have a contract, they literally hand that over to our disposition person or our disposition team. Disposition takes over, acquisition gets out of it, and they're out for good unless the deal starts unraveling for some reason, or there's some issue, then we'll pull them back in because they're the ones who sat with the seller for an hour or more sometimes and created all this good feelings and all this rapport. So if something starts going sideways, sometimes we'll pull them back in to help resurrect that deal. But under normal circumstances, you do pre-work, you go on appointments, you get contracts, and that's it, right? One trick pony. Dispositions is in charge of getting that property out to our buyers list, creating email marketing for that, getting it out to the buyers list, and then negotiating, answering questions, and sort of facilitating that assignment contract that we're trying to create with our buyers. And then that from there, once we get the assignment contract, all contracts go to the title company. Our transaction team handles it from there. And the transaction team really is just herding cats. They're trying to get buyers and the sellers and death certificates and you know, all these other deeds and, and LLCs and wiring instructions, like all this stuff that has to happen to make a deal get closed. The transaction team handles all of that interaction. They're looking at the HUD. They're making sure that all the numbers are right and, and that the buyer has seen the HUD before they get to the closing and the seller seen it before they get to closing. The last thing you want to do is let buyers or se- specifically sellers, but your buyers too, make sure they see the closing docs before they show up at the closing or you will have problems. People will say, what is this? Why am I paying that? I'm not going to pay this. And so that's what we do. And then finally, we have a bookkeeper that kind of rounds out our team and and they're in charge of just making sure the numbers are straight. Yeah, hundred percent. So on the acquisition side, how scripted is that process? So from the front door to the contract, is it super scripted or are you letting people really letting their personality shine through? It is very unscripted. What I believe in doing, and I'm lucky my partner happens to be a great salesperson. So he handles the sales side of it more than I do. But what we do is we give our acquisition team tools, right? We give them strategies. We give them talking tracks or you know how to overcome certain objections that are pretty common. But I'm not going to hire someone that isn't already a good salesperson. They don't have to be a good real estate person. They just have to be a good salesperson and I'll make them a good real estate salesperson. So we let them use their skills, right? It's sort of like saying, I'm going to hire the greatest athlete in the world, but they're going to have to play the way I want them to play. And it's like, no, 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 no. Barry Sanders, right? I'm in Michigan, right? If you're a football fan, you don't tell Barry Sanders how to run the ball. You give him the ball, sit back and watch magic happen. And that's what we want our team to do. I want to hire people who are really, really good at what they do and let them go be great at it. Because the more constraints I put on them, the less chance they have of actually becoming better than me, which is what I want them all to be. Very cool. So we started with the market. Let's kind of end with the market. So let's assume that we go into a market that is a declining price market. And, and let's say it's, it's not a no calamity, but we're in a declining market. I mean, as a wholesaler, how do you feel the best way to navigate that kind of a market is? Well, if it's a declining market, I'm going to say the likelihood that the news is scaring the heck out of everybody is pretty high, right? The news will be screaming, the sky is falling before I ever have a chance to do it. So I will make sure that the buyers 
if they're not already aware, make them aware of what's actually happening in the market. And hopefully I can articulate that with data and show them house prices, how they're declining. So first of all, I, the last thing I do or the last thing my company does when we go and talk to a seller is try to convince them to sell their house, right? Typically yeah. they come to us because they have, a, they have a problem. So our first job is to figure out what their problem is and solve that problem and do it through real estate, obviously, right? But we'll, we'll bring in supporting evidence of why we're offering them what we're offering them. And for the most part, you know, when you see something bad coming, typically you want to get out of it beforehand. And we do this all the time with like the seasons. I'm in Michigan. So there's winter, summer, uh, spring and fall, right? So when winter's coming, we gently remind homeowners who call us for help that, listen, I know we're offering you a little less than what you are hoping to get. And you have every right to try to get every bit you can out of this house. You can put on the MLS, you can do whatever you want. Winter's coming though. Remember that, right? There's frozen pipes, there's ice on the sidewalks, there's slip and falls, all these things that you don't want to have to think about. You can keep it through winter and try to get a little bit more money. I'm offering to buy it now. And I'm taking the risk that as winter comes and we have less buyers in the winter time, let's just face the music, right? We're taking on that risk. If you call us in a couple of months, we may not be wanting to take on that risk, right? We may be all set. So we use strategies like that just to remind people of the reality because honestly, most people, and rightfully so, have a lot of house pride. They, you know, put the cabinets in that were put in in 1992, but they put them in. They remember when they were new. And to them, their house is, is great. And sometimes you have to just kind of bring them back to reality of what's happening in the market, what's happening with the seasons, what's happening with other houses around them. You know, the house that sold for $20,000 more than we're offering them, it had a new kitchen and bathroom. They just replaced kitchen and bathroom. Your kitchen and bathroom is beautiful, but it hasn't been replaced in 15 years. So they're going to get more than you. So these are the kind of talk tracks we use. In a declining market though, honestly, like the easiest time to be a wholesaler, in my opinion, is in a declining market. The hardest time to be a wholesaler is in a seller's market. We're currently in a seller's market right? So this is when it's difficult. Everyone knows that they're getting top dollar right now. So it gets a little bit more tricky, but the minute we start feeling like we're trying to push them to sell to us, we back off and just go, this isn't a good fit. And sometimes the process of backing off and kind of withdrawing your offer makes people come back and go, Whoa, wait a minute, wait, 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 let's talk about this, right? So it's the takeaway. It's a tool. It's a, it's a sales tool, the takeaway. It's a legitimate, like time proven sales tool. And we use it. Because sometimes it isn't a good fit. We go, okay, it's not a good fit. I get it. You, you want more. You should go out and try to get more. In a month, I might not be willing to give you this much though. So it's your decision. You, you can do whatever you'd like to do. And then sometimes that helps re-engage. And you know, it's funny. One of the best techniques I've heard before for in that process, you're, you're going through this discovery process of what their pain point is. And you're having this conversation. You're building rapport. And you just can't come to a price, right? You talk about it. They're just, you're not going to get the right price. You can't come to a price. As you're leaving the house, before you leave, it's a kind of a, this old TV show called Columbo, something he used to do. You get to the door and you go, just one more question before I go. I know that this deal isn't going to work. I can't pay you what you want. You're not willing to take what I'm offering. I get it. It's a done deal. It's dead. But just out of curiosity, is there anything I could have done to get this deal done today? Is there anything I could have done at all that would have changed your mind? And sometimes people will just tell you their price at that point. And you can start that negotiation again. So it's an interesting thing. Once it's a dead deal and you know you're done, just before you leave, just say no harm. I know I'm not going to buy your house, but what could I have done differently? Really great tip that you guys need to, to implement. So Mike, tell me about the book. It sounds really exciting. Tell me about the book. What inspired you to write it? How can yeah, people definitely. Thank you. It's called Level Jumping. And uh, when I kind of bumped around and kind of stumbled around and tried to feel my way in the dark in this business, 
for about five years. And I finally joined a mastermind called Seven Figure Flipping, which I know you're familiar. And surrounding myself with the right people, putting myself in a room with people who are beyond me in business. They had done more. They had kind of, they were where I wanted to be. And deconstructing their businesses taught me so much that I literally was doing two, maybe three deals on a good month in my market. And by the way, I was a rock star in my market. I was talking at RIAs. People were coming to me. They wanted to pick my brain, take me out to lunch. Like I kind of felt like, hey, I got this kind of figured out. And then I surrounded myself with people who were doing like 10, 12, 15, 20 deals a month. And I'm like, I'm nothing. Like I am so tiny. But I got the chance to sit down and talk to them. And what I learned was to grow your business, you have to do you know, in the e-myth, we learn what technicians are. We learn what operators are, people who are in the business, right? And then we also learn what owner operators and managers and visionaries are. And so you have to take yourself out of the operator technician role and start building a team. And then your job becomes to hire, manage, train, inspire, and lead people. And that's a totally different skill set, right? In the automotive industry, I saw it all the time. People would be great at something, right? An engineer, great engineer, the best engineer in the engineering department. And they would take that poor soul and they would make him the engineering manager. And they would fail because they're not a good manager. They don't like leading people. They don't like managing. They like engineering. So what you have to learn to do is take yourself out of the role of engineer and learn to become that engineering manager. So you're now you're, you're managing people who, by the way, hopefully are better than you at their individual tasks they should be better than you or be, have the potentially better. And then you step above that. Now you're looking down at the chessboard and you're making moves as an owner because you're not on the chessboard all day long trying to just get things done. And that was the big thing, right? Tracking numbers, hiring people, and just basically learning how to lead people instead of being the operator and doing everything for yourself. Because you have bandwidth. I don't care how optimized and efficient you are. There's a limit to what you can do because we all have to sleep sometime. And maybe you can get done twice as much as me and the other guy can do twice as much as you, but there's a limit. I don't care how good you are. You have a limit. And the only way you break past that, and by the way, when it's just you and you're doing everything, you've got a job. You may like your job. It may be better than working for somebody else. Don't get it wrong. You have a job. And until you start hiring and scaling and creating systems and processes so that you can step out of that day-to-day, you have a job. And then when you do that, you have a business and that there's a different feeling to that. Really, really great advice. Mike, appreciate you being with us. For those that are interested in contacting you or learning more about what you do, how can they find you? A couple ways. You can go to juststartrealestate.com. That's my uh, podcast website. So Just Start Real Estate, you can check me out there. Also, I'm going to be speaking at an event next month. It's called Flip Hacking Live. If you go to bestrealestateevent.com, you can get more information, check it out, buy tickets if you want to. I'm going to be speaking there. Some of the folks I just talked about that really were mentors for me and helped me grow my business are also going to be speaking there. Um, you can go and check that out. Or if you want to send me an email, you can just send it to Mike at juststartrealestate.com. And if you don't mind, I've got a digital download of my book. I can make available for free to your folks if they're interested. Absolutely. If you text the words, and that's two words now, text the words, just start to the number 55444. And I'll send you a free digital download of my book. Very cool. You guys be sure and partake in that. And we will put that in the show notes. Mike, really enjoyed it. Appreciate you being with us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.